This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. This week on the Indo-Daily. I actually don't believe, right, that priests said or have any harm. It just, like, thought I knew. But that's how I found that Miriam Martina was dead. How likely is it that Trump will be found guilty of paying hush money to former adult film star Stormy Daniels? We're talking about involvement in serious drugs activity on both sides of the border, and as well as that, the procurement of weapons. Find and follow us at all the usual spots and over on the Irish Independent website. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Irokti, a yen of Chacht Erechor, Agasuligum, a Machan Shaw, Gurfader Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashi, Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echo. Vientalam again omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Hello and welcome to the Left Wing Podcast. Will Slattery here. I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Luke Fitzgerald and on the line by Jonathan Bradley of the Belfast Telegraph. The Champions Cup pool stages are done and dusted and the path into the knockout stages has been set. So we have plenty to get into tonight. Also, the Six Nations launch was earlier this week with that coming into view next week. Obviously, that big game in Marseille on Friday week, Ireland versus France. So plenty to discuss tonight. But since it's Jonathan Bradley, we have on... We're going to have to start with us here, Jonathan. And I, I saw your tweet. I think you had some travel issues, like a lot of people coming back from the UK over the weekend. What is the mood like in Belfast as we sit here now after that? We after kind of the debacle in Harlequins. I know John Cooney said that fans were very supportive to him after the game uh, at the Twickenham Stoop. But what's the mood? Would you say among supporters? And what what do you just think about about where the team is at? We had the highs of of the win over Leinster on New Year's Day. It seems that was a year ago, not two weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just the sort of team that they are at the minute. You know, it comes almost a cliche to describe inconsistent teams. You just don't know what you're going to get from them week to week. But with Ulster, that really is the case. You know, you look at their last 30 games, which is a substantial sample size, and they've won 15 and lost 15. And they've, you know, you point out the fact that they beat teams like Leinster, they beat Racing, they beat Munster, but they've also put in some really, really abject performances where they've been. Hockey, like seven tries a game for two weeks running is a terrible indictment of where you're at before you even examine the types of tries that they were conceding. You know, Stuart McCluskey, after Toulouse, used the word schoolboy to describe the tries that Ulster were conceding against Toulouse. To my mind, the tries that they conceded against Harlequins were so much worse again. Like, if you genuinely saw 
players switching off, allowing quick line-outs, players switching off for quick taps. At any level of rugby, you'd be disappointed, let alone a professional team playing in their biggest game of the season to stay in the Champions Cup. I mean, it really was incredible, some of the scores that they gave up in that uh, in that Hardigans game. Just, uh, I suppose, you're asking about the mood. And yeah, I saw John Cooney's uh, post on social media. And I think, by and large, there is a cohort of Ulster travelling fans that will be at games like that, that are very supportive, that will really buy into this idea of being a part of the team, sticking with the players through thick and thin. And then you'll obviously have a number of supporters in the other camp who just don't think that uh, professional standards are being met. So we all know that rugby, you know, rugby isn't like football. You're not going to have massive car park protests about uh, managers getting sacked and things like that. But there is a groundswell of dissatisfaction, I would say, that is more evident in fans that are just not turning up to games anymore rather than the fans that are traveling with the team back and forth and the ones that are meeting and interacting with the players. And as Cooney was pointing out, giving them, you know, encouragement by all accounts, telling them that, you know, oh, it's okay, we'll go and win the Challenge Cup sort of thing, which to my mind is a bit uh, sort of missing the wood for the trees, like, you know, but um, that's what it is. Yeah, look, obviously last week you had a good kind of a set, cut off Ulster. So I think I set the scene at halftime uh, at the weekend. I, I tweeted at you and I said, I was like, you know, if Luke was was, got, was tearing his hair out last week, I don't wonder what, he, what he's thinking now. But as Jonathan alluded to there, like if the tries they conceded against Toulouse were secondary school, God, that first half was primary school stuff against against Queens. Like we had Jacob Stockdale misjudging the bounce of a ball, Robert Balakun, you know, somewhat similar sliding in, like fumbling at Queens getting two easy tries. The quick line out, you know, Nick David running in from 60 meters untouched. Like, I think you're being generous at primary school. I think it was Montessori at best. Like, I just felt like if, you know, you're going over to, to Harlequins and you're allowing them to play that game. Like, if you think about who you're playing at a, at a most basic fundamental level, allowing someone like a Marcus Smith or, or just some of the dangerous players that they have. Um, that amount of freedom and space uh, to attack you, like quick lineups, things like that, should have been on the radar all week. Saying, "Listen, these are the these are the these are things we are just not going to allow happen uh, during the week, or sorry, on the weekend against this Harlequins team." And um, yeah, obviously, some of the mistakes. I mean, they really don't help. They happen from from time to time, but they just look careless to me. You know, people just not having urgency in in scenarios, They're not realizing the the gravity of certain situations of of, of making a mistake. Like Balakun looks to me like he's trying to collect that with one hand, uh, not in a real showy way, but it's just just a way too casual, you know. And um, for players that are really really good, I mean, look, last week I did go on a bit of a rant because I you were kind of going to go gloss over. You're going to say, well, look, we're not going to talk. about it. We know what happened with Ulster, and I was like, well, no, hang on, we don't because. Well, for the record, just the reason I wanted to, I wasn't trying to gloss over. We'd gone for like an hour and ten minutes. I was like, oh, we're open. We, we probably like, I have to cut something from the running order. So just, <laughs> just throw that little behind the curtain. There. That was my thinking. But sorry, okay, well, that does make sense because I, I just felt like there's no way we can't cover this. I mean, that you can't, you just can't continue to go from a performance like they had in the RDS to these two weeks in a row. And we, we saw it last year as well. Like I would argue that they're they're actually quite consistently poor 
in big games where they need to really show up. That 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 is my feeling about this Ulster team. Just when you're when the expectation levels rise even a little bit, they just seem to disappoint you consistently. You know, so I, I get Jonathan's point, and 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 if you look at the whole body of work there, you know, you can see an inconsistent team. But I would say they're consistently bad when they really need to turn up, and I, and I think they're way better than they're showing. Um, and that's what's so disappointing about it, you know. And I think, look, uh, there's going to be a cohort of support, or supporters in in probably nearly all the provinces that are going to show up and support the team, and so uh, you know, no matter what. But that's probably not the most. They're, it's the it's wrong to say they're not the, the the most important because clearly they are the heartbeat of of all the clubs. But you really like where you come under pressure is where that it's where that other cohort who are kind of disenchanted and don't see, you know, kind of the basics being performed and don't see the team really fronting up physically. Um, you know, you think of some of the some of the tackling against Toulouse particularly, like at home. Um, you know, those kind of things, that's where you lose a cohort of supporters that are very, very important to you financially. We know there's been a bit of a few challenges up in Ulster with that too. So um I don't know. I don't know how you fix it at this stage. I, I would never call for something kind of drastic in terms of coaching or anything like that. That's not what I think I don't like doing those things, but uh, they they certainly need to have it's it, it, this is happening too often and I feel like I've said the, the players need to have a look at themselves in the mirror too often with this social team I, it feels like maybe something bigger has to has to happen they they certainly need um, to to make a change somewhere and whether that's adding someone to the coaching staff or whether that's making a bigger change I don't know but it can't continue like this there's too much quality in my opinion there um, for for the results to drop off in the big stage like this and I think you know I go on a lot about defence will and it probably drives people mad and, and they think it's obviously a boring part of the game but to me it's a fundamental and and, and it's also a real a really it, it gives you a peek behind the mental toughness and the, even even your concentration levels as a team uh, and I think you know the way Ulster performed the last two weeks that that's a sign of a of way bigger issues behind the scenes to me rather than just what we're seeing on the pitch. It's not a case of the big, you know, coming to the big game and they're not showing up. It's there's something wrong about the concentration levels and the commitment levels. And and I think they need to get that sort of really quickly. Yeah, and in terms of the consistency element of it, like Jonathan summed it up, over a 30-game sample size, 15 wins, 15 losses. Like, it's not even like 20 losses and 10 wins where you're on the slide. You're literally slap-bang in the inconsistent middle of probably... And if you looked at the, the schedule, it's probably like win-loss, win-loss a lot of the time as well, which is, I think immensely frustrating for supporters up there. Jonathan, in terms of like where they go from here, I, I liked your piece. Um, I think it was today on the Belfast Telegraph about the Challenge Cup and, you know, whether it's it can be a positive going forward this season if they go on to win it. You kind of drew comparisons with like, you know, lesser secondary football tournaments like maybe the Europa League or the, or the League Cup that like, you know, is that really worth celebrating massively? Like, But my thought on it is, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it, is is it better for Ulster, say, to like limp into the last 16 and get trounced by Toulouse again or, or beaten out the gate by Leinster. And I'd apply this to maybe Connacht as well or go into the Challenge Cup. And I know it's a, you know, a secondary competition. Of course it is. But there's still good teams in that. And I know you, you made a good point about like have the teams who've won it really kicked on a, 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 in a meaningful way. But when you haven't won a trophy in so long and you're playing, like you know, the quality in that tournament I still think is pretty decent. Like, what, what do you think about that? Like, I, I don't know if there's how, what the value is really in getting to another last 16 and getting beaten out the gate again. I just think the Champions Cup is a yardstick tournament. Like, you know, I talked about the last 30 games, but to Luke's point about this team not showing up in the big games, it's two wins in the last 10 Champions Cup games. My worry would be that if you go and win the Challenge Cup by beating, say for the sake of argument, Montpellier, Claremont, the Sharks, 
and sale. It's not inconceivable that Ulster could beat those teams. But does that then generate some sort of feeling of goodwill that there isn't something that needs to change, something fundamental that needs to change about this team and about this setup? Because they've won a piece of silverware that realistically they're only able to win because they failed in their first goal of the season, which is to get out of their Champions Cup pool. So I would just worry that it would be viewed as this real positive thing. Like, you know, I let off that column saying that if you were born the day Ulster last won a trophy, you'd be two days shy of being able to legally celebrate a Challenge Cup win by buying a pint. That's how long it's been. (laughs) So like Ulster aren't in a position to turn their nose up at it. But my worry would be that it would just be papering over the cracks of what appear to be much more fundamental issues when you're getting these types of performances over the course of really 14 months, like more than a season now. And it's it's the type of performances and it's the type of things that just can't be explained away, really. You know, Luke says about you have to be aware about these quick taps. By all accounts, they spent time a considerable amount of time looking at this last week in training and then still managed to switch off for it. Like it's uh, it's just a really, really bad look for a professional team to be doing some of the things that they've been doing recently. And I think that winning, you know, winning cures all ills in a lot of ways, and especially when it's a fan base that have been so starved of any type of silverware. But I don't see how beating those types of teams. And it's no disrespect. You know, we're talking about like Claremont are a massive team. The Sharks, you look at some of the players they have regardless of where they're going. Like Ulster would have to beat significant teams to do this. But I don't think if they do that and then all of a sudden go back into the Champions Cup and get trounced again a couple of times, like I don't see that they'll have made any progress from it, I suppose is what I mean. Like what? What? But like, I agree with what John's saying. Like, I don't think it would be a case even if they did win that there'd be like an open top bus tour around Belfast. You know, I, I don't think it would be like that. Obviously, it's a Challenge Cup. Like, people know that's not the the be all or the you know the top you know prize on offer. But you know, to go and beat the list of teams Jonathan named would show a level of consistency. It would show a level of performance. They're not Toulouse and Leinster, but they're, they're some of those teams are, are good size. As you said, the league position you know, isn't great for some of them this season, but the quality in the squads is definitely there. Is that not more valuable than kind of getting into the last 16 by you know a bit of a look, a bit of luck or a squeezing through and then just getting torn asunder in the last 16, which is almost certainly what would have happened. I think it's more valuable. But they shouldn't get torn asunder. Like I think the big point here is that like they sh- what they showed against Leinster a couple of weeks ago, that that is something that... The what the product they put out that day that is good enough to beat top teams in any competition. I don't care who you are. You just the, the spirit within the team, the accuracy at times when they needed to, the bit of flair at times when they needed to, the clinical edge that they showed, all the things they had on show that day tell me that they can beat the top teams. So I don't understand why we'd be saying, oh, they shouldn't be. You know they're they're not able for champions. It wasn't a full Leinster team though. Like, I know it, was it wasn't, but it was, team, but it's still away from home though. It's, it's away from home. That's a that's a like that Leinster team is, is yeah. would have been good enough to beat. I'm going to say 90% of the teams in Europe, um, probably in the Champions Cup actually as well. I, I think at home. Um, so to my mind, it's just not good enough, you know. I, I, and I I think I, I, look, let's get off that point because I think that's fairly clear that they're inconsistent and. I think they have the potential to to show great performance. I don't think it's uh, what I think 
you're right in that it would probably they probably would get a trouncing in the quarterfinals. But it's also wrong for us to be in that mindset about this team, which is the bigger issue here. To go back to your point about the Challenge Cup and whether it serves a purpose, it may well do. Um, I don't know how much of a purpose, but I think you could definitely start showing some consistency there. Um, does it mean as much if it's against lesser opposition? I, I don't know about that. I, and and that's, that remains to be seen. I think there probably is some value in them getting a couple of wins on the belt, getting a little bit of confidence. Um, you know, But I still think, to, to Jonathan's point about the barometer being the, the, the Cup, the Champions Cup, is still right. And this team should be in this. You know, whether they're, they're not a final team in my mind, but they're definitely a, a couple of big performances. They have a couple of big performances to get into a semi-final type team, would, would be my opinion about Ulster. And, and that's why I kind of went, I've, I've kind of gone so hard in on them, is that I just, uh, I just would hate to see them slip into that kind of mindset where they think it's okay to be in this competition and there's value because I think they're, it's a bigger organization than that. Like I think Ulster, maybe, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's all moved on from when I, what, what I think of Ulster, but um, I don't know. I think if I look individually at the players, I think there's a few, a few players who I think I would have issue with um, in, in terms of them being at the very top table, but not that many that they're, that they're this far away, that they're a challenge cup team. Yeah, you know. No, look, you and Jonathan, obviously I, I'm, I'm in the minority amongst the three of us. I just do think if they went on a run and won it, as I said, I think it would show consistency. They would need a, a form line to get there because I think there are decent teams in the tournament. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, you know, as I said, is it, is it better than playing one more game in Europe and getting heavily beaten? Because they would have probably been a four seed. Maybe, maybe not. You know, it, they're in the tournament now, so we'll be interested to see how they approach it. Connacht are in there as well. They're they're in a similar position. They obviously beat Bristol to, to get into uh, the, the Challenge Cup. So, yeah, the, no. the other way of looking at that, Will, is that it's kind of an opportunity loss. So say they were always going to be, after the start they had, um, they were probably always going to be, you know, struggling to to get, a, obviously, a, you know, a top seeding. So they were always going to be going away uh, for, for for this match against a tough, probably against, you know, a, a better ranked, or top quality team in Europe in the, in the in the Champions Cup, right? But the other way of looking at that is it could have been a, it could have been a moment for them and a big away day win uh, in the Champions Cup. So there's a missed opportunity there in my mind too, you know, so you don't have to go the whole way, but you could definitely yeah. take something from a big away day win, if you know what I mean. So there is something in, in that as well. I, I can see the, con the the consistency is definitely the bigger issue, and maybe this does give them an opportunity to to do that against some pretty solid teams. I, I agree with that that point. I, I yeah, I, I'm not going to argue with you too hard on that one. And Jonathan, to, and like at the same time, like supporters would probably like even the hope, even if it was Toulouse away, of like of even the you know you have, the next game is until April in the knockout. So like you could just even dream of, of that day rather than a Challenge Cup campaign. Even if they do end up going on to win it, a lot of supporters would still probably rather roll the dice even if it's only one knockout game in the Champions Cup yeah I mean that's the way that I would think but it does seem to me just from the people that you know I've spoken to over there and since I got back that most people seem to think that giving the Champions or the Challenge Cup a real crack is better than being in the Champions Cup like I I just don't agree fundamentally because I think there is a, this real possibility to as I said, paper over cracks. The other thing is that they, there's every chance that they wouldn't actually win this competition. You know, they were in it two or three years ago and didn't win it. And like, the fact of the matter is they'd be coming back from two weeks in South Africa before that Montpellier last 16 tie. Like, I know Montpellier aren't, uh, aren't doing well in the top 14, but they could theoretically be going two games in South Africa in the ERC to come back to play most likely two games in France. Like, that's going to be a big ask for them to do. And I think one thing that all three of us would be able to agree on is that if you're in the Challenge Cup, it's certainly better to win it than not win it. So 
the idea, you know, the idea that <laughs> they're in this competition, so they're going to win it, and that'll have a tangible benefit. They still have to go and win it, and they don't look like they're going to do that. You know, I think if you look at across the last two weeks, and you know, you mentioned the Six Nations lunch. You know, Andy Farrell was talking about teams that win, win moments. You know, win the small moments that make the big moments in the game. Like we haven't really looked or talked about the fact that Ulster could have been ahead in that game at halftime if they didn't just do disastrous things in the big moments in the game. Like, you know, they had 11 entries into Harlequins 22 and came away with 19 points. Like, that's that's miserable. And Harlequins didn't have to work for their scores. Ulster were actually in the Harlequins 22 more than Harlequins were in their 22. And they ended up getting an absolute thumping. Like, it's just, they don't look like a team that's going to be capable of being consistent enough to even win the Challenge Cup, I don't think, because you're going to need four decent performances and they will have a clunker in there. Like, that's the team that they are. Yeah, as you said, two two weeks in South Africa, followed by two weeks in France to even get to a semi-final is, is a pretty arduous task. So it'll be interesting to see how they do approach it uh, later in the year. We'll, we'll leave Ulster for now. I think their fans are already depressed. Enough. <laughs> stop, stop. He's <laughs> already dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but now for Munster fans to take their, uh, you know, to take guys, it was their, their turn. Um, you know, 15-7 ahead at halftime, not having to get a man sent off. You think for all money, Munster are going into the second half with another commanding lead. They kind of stretched it 20 points to 10. And for the third time in four pool matches, they lost a 10-point or more second half lead, ended up losing to Northampton. Northampton obviously showed great character and steel to, to get the victory, but very disappointing for Munster. You know, why did they lose that game, do you think? Um, I think the conditions are kind of important in that too. Obviously, they were against the win second half. That doesn't help either. Um, but leaving that aside, I thought, you know, and, and sorry, the conditions do play a part in this. They didn't manage to really spread the pitch well enough to really expose, I, I thought, Northampton with that man down throughout the game. Um, and, and that was a problem for them. They also weren't very clinical, I thought, at kind of key moments. They didn't show much composure. Um, and they looked, like they, they looked a bit panicky at the end. Now, I will say... Um, and not to not to ruin my moment of the week <laughs> for the end of the show, I thought um, Northampton showed some serious steel. And I mean, we'll go to the drop kick later on, but the drop kick was mad. like they they had those huge moments in, in on an away day that you kind of need to drag you through. And they had some big defensive sets as well. They were they were impressive to watch. I thought, um, but Munster seemed to get you know I think Omani once Omani went off like they were in a commanding position when he left the pitch. You know that's probably not a good sign either. Um, you know, and then a Hearn going off as well was another you know a bit of a blow at different points in the game. He he's kind of become an important part of the game plan and does seem to spread the pitch quite well for them. You see him in that wing quite a bit given that kicking option um, and I thought they just were a little bit loose at different points in the game I thought they struggled to Casey looked like he was carrying a bit of an injury to me and he didn't kick very well I thought from the base he had a few loose ones and they didn't get up and compete on those box kicks which in fairness into the wind you'd expect to get a couple of those back during the game it doesn't actually make a massive difference but it just you would expect a bit more uh, I thought pay from them and he kicked a lot of them in field I thought towards the end I thought Northampton changed that kick off quite well into the into the other corner I thought that was a smart play because it was blowing his kicks and it was tricky for a left footer to get them back in uh, you know, to, to keep them tied to the touchline. So I thought they, they tactically were, were good and managed Munster well. But on the other side, Munster didn't manage themselves very well. And I think, you know, you'll always kick yourself at home when you're in that position, regardless of how challenging the the, uh, the conditions were. Um, and it did make it easier for, for Northampton to withstand the, 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 the pressure of 14 men for that long. Um, 
it was it was one that got away from them again, and it and it's a little bit concerning. I thought the way they 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 just lacked a little bit of direction at the at the key junctures in the game. They've done most of the hard work. They put themselves in the position, but can't capitalize. So, um, look, they've got away with it. They've gotten through, but it's a very tough task for them now. Oh, yeah, like Jonathan, if you look at Munster's kind of pool stage, it's 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 almost unfathomable how they ended up only winning one of the games. Like you know, two home games against a Bayonne second string team. And like what is a very good Northampton team, but obviously with 14 men and a double-digit lead in the second half, like to, to not close out any of those games, you know, they, they could easily be sitting there with, I think they had three tries on the board in both home games after 50 minutes, couldn't get the four-try bonus. So that's two points you kind of leave on the table if without even winning the game from there. It's just like they could very well be sitting here with 20 points out of 20 and like, you know, really targeting a run at this tournament. And obviously of all the top seeds, Northampton away is probably the, the best draw, you know, if it's Toulouse, Leinster and Bordeaux or the other options. But that'll still be a tricky game. But it's just there was so much more promise. Like, why do you think they've fallen down, not just on Saturday, but over the course of the pool stage? Because there's been a lot of similar leads lost and lack of composure in the second half. I know they've had various injuries. And again, at the weekend, Luke touching a few. But why do you ultimately think that they've only managed one win when they were in such commanding positions across the board in four matches? Yeah, and that one win being against Toulon away, like, you know, they did the... the toughest game. Toughest game, game yeah. like, you know, um, I think, and it's no disrespect to the squad players but like I think where the injuries have really hit them sort of in the last couple of weeks it's just been it's the knock-on effect because I think you can see that in the final quarter of the game most especially when Peter O'Mahony went up but just as a sort of general trend I think in the final quarter of the game when they are having to go to that bench and it's guys that wouldn't necessarily have been there because you know the guys that would be on the bench have replaced the injured guys in the starting lineup and I just think the knock-on effect of that is sort of left them deep hard a bit in the last quarter of games. I think they've probably missed a wee bit of experience in that last 20 minutes as well. You know, Conor Murray, as a, just as an example, in closing out games. And I think that's really, really important, but it becomes all the more important at this level. Like the margins at this level, at Champions Cup level, are fine. You have to do an awful lot of things well. You can't get into a lead and coast, you really have to see it through all the way to the 80th minute. And I think Monsters Pool stage has probably shown that and that they're just missing that sort of, I suppose you would call it a clinical edge, maybe a ruthless edge. And I think part of that comes down to experience blooding the youngsters into the team. And part of it comes down to, as I said, just lacking that little bit of depth to be able to have the bench that you really need to close out games at this level. And when you think of the, like the injuries are, are a big a big part of that, I think, Jonathan, aren't they? I mean, you you mentioned it there, but you think about the injuries in the row. You know, you've got a dog boot client and you've got Simon too. You know what I mean? That's that's a and big... And a going off. And a hern going off as well. Like, they're all power players. Like, probably one or two of them are on the bench for you. Like, you think about the impact that they would have if they have a full deck to play from. So, look, they've got through... I think they could beat Northampton over yeah, there. So very, I. very capable yeah. of that. Uh, they showed what they can do away from home last year. They need bodies back in the pitch. They need Zebo back. That didn't look like a good... He looked, he looked upset coming off the pitch, which means it might be a kind of a recurrence of maybe a serious one. Maybe I'm jumping the gun on that one. Um, he looked a bit... 
he didn't look himself. I thought he looked really like you know. I'm sure he's really disappointed not to get in that Irish team. You know, he's a he's an emotional guy. Plays with with that on. You know, he, when he when he's happy, he plays better. I think. And I thought he looked like he was just not himself. Maybe he was carrying the injury a little bit earlier as well. It wasn't maybe it wasn't 100. percent But he had a few sloppy ones for a guy who's been like their go to guy in the back line. I think for for big moments, but also for a real solidity. Like he was, he's been a he's been a cornerstone stone for this team in in a tough period. So him going off didn't help either in a fairly key position. And that left foot of his would have really helped as well. Um, and obviously he's got the passing ability, which was a little bit off from his usual high standards. But uh, he, he was a bit of a loss. I thought Crowley wasn't great either. I thought he just, it was a very difficult conditions. I feel harsh actually kind of, um, you know, kind of getting stuck in. But I, I, I'm not really doing that. I just, he, he just looked a little bit off. Well, he's starting for Ireland in two weeks' time. So I think it's fair to be assessing him with that eye in mind like if Johnny Sexton had that performance people would have been like that wasn't a good performance that was a bit concerning and it was a little bit concerning look but it is a challenge with that pack I, I think he's you know you are missing the real power there um, you know and, and it's it, you know he wasn't he wasn't great in difficult conditions. Now Northampton were good. I think we have to give them credit. Like their their defense was was very very I thought they were impressive. They looked like a team who, you know, when I, when I talk about Ulster and you talk about the kind of defensive side of things and the heart and the little bit of know-how and the little bit of cuteness um, that it takes to to kind of be relatively consistent. Uh, you know, I think Northampton look at, looked like a team who have that to me and they look tough. They look like they're up for the fight. They're out there in the pitch for each other. They're not kind of making silly, well, they're not making too many silly mistakes bar that the knee was obviously pretty <laughs> pretty silly. Uh, and I think it was a bit of dirty play actually, by the yeah, way. That's... I know we're going to cover it, but I, I do think, um, you know, Northampton looked like a, a tough outfit and, and it looks like Dowson's done a really good job with them. So it was, it was pleasing for them to, to see them do so so well, you know. Yeah, Jonathan, I want to touch on the red card and I'll follow the Connacht one as well from the, the Bristol Connacht game as well. Uh, Josh Caulfield was cleared for that subsequently to, uh, this afternoon, I think, for this for the stamp on Philly Beelham. We'll go to the Northampton one first. So Curtis Langdon, just before half time, people have probably seen it at this stage, kind of looked like accidentally knee Tom O'Hearn in, in the head going down. And then there was a secondary knee motion to the face. He got a red card. The referee said that he can't. He, they couldn't kind of say for certain that it was you know deliberate, but it was definitely reckless. Gave him a red card. Did you think it was the right call? I did think it was the right call and I thought it was really interesting to hear the referee say that in light of what we'd seen the night before with Connacht because all this talk about intent and yes, you can make a guess at it, but the fact of the matter is we can never with 100% accuracy judge intent. So intent to me can't really come into it. So uh, can, just, I, can I, sorry, I, we're trying not to interrupt each other on the pod, but can I ask you just a quick one just to, on the intent thing, Jonathan? Do you think it's a natural motion? That was one thing I would ask. I, I would, I, I would, I would maybe counter or just get like to get your thoughts on. I, I, the first knee, I completely agree. But do you think moving the second knee into that position is a natural is a natural movement? Because I think that comes into it. If you know what I mean. If it's not natural, I think then it, there is a bit of intent there. Yeah, and I think that uh, absolutely has to play into it in terms of is it a natural movement and how much care did you take over that movement? And again, that comes into the the Connacht one as well. So for me, it's not even about whether you mean it or not. It's just, did you do something without giving due consideration to the opponent? Was there a level of recklessness there or a level of carelessness there about what you did, regardless of whether you meant it or not? And in both cases, I think you can say that there was, regardless of the intent. But I think both of those uh, incidents coming within 24 hours of each other really just showed how difficult it is for referees to say, oh, well, I think he meant this or I think he didn't mean this because you could have argued the case 
either way, or both players could have argued the case either way. And I think that's why you have to get away from saying about intent, you know? But I thought intent had been kind of stripped out of it. Like, I'm just even thinking back as far as, like, you know, Jared Payne and against Saracens, Jonathan, I'm sure you well remember that one back in the day. Like, people don't, like, you know, do people think he went out to deliberately flip Alex Good, I think it was, onto his head? Like, ah, uh, no, no. No, but no. then, but like, say, the, like, no, no, sorry, I'm not talking, I'm thinking that's no, that's yeah. a bad example. So no, but, what do you mean? I think that no, yeah, that is that is reckless. You are going. No, I'm, in, no, I'm saying it's reckless, and he deserved a red card. No, but that's it's that's so stupid you, too. But, but my point is, whether you mean to do it or not, you still like. So uh, Josh Caulfield, the other, like the other night, he didn't probably mean to stamp on Philly Needham's face, but he took a huge step into the air and planted his foot like uh, no, hard that, down, and a Caulfield beat him in the face. So Finley, I think it is a red card. Finley Beelham moves into it was a that was a really unlucky one. Unlucky, yes. It was really unlucky because if you look at the way Finley Beelham's body moves just after it, so he's obviously going to try and hurdle him to get his... So you're obviously... The technique in rooking and in tackling is to try and get that first foot, that plant foot, as close to the contact as possible so you can drive from that position and exert more force through a longer through, through a longer position. Because if your feet are further back, there's only so far you can go without losing... without going off, off your feet. So you're trying to get the foot as close as possible and as low as possible so you can drive further through the rook. Same thing for a tackle applies. Um, and I, I could see exactly what he was trying to do. And if you see what happened, Bielham has a late movement to me um, that actually moves his head. Sli- it's only slight, but it moves it slightly back towards it. Now, I don't think, I, I think it was right that it was a red card only because he's not far enough away from Bielham making, you need to be, you need to make sure you're further away from fe- from Bielham's body uh, or from his head there that it's definitely, that you're, you know, you're 90% or 95% sure that, he, you know, a movement from him or a small movement from him, you're not going to be standing on his head. I think it is yeah. a little bit careless. it's a small movement. It is a small so movement, but it does move into his path. Care, like I think maybe, it, but that's a real marginal one for me. I I, I don't think there's any marginal, uh, there's nothing marginal in the in the Northampton one. I actually think that was a dirty play. I, I think I think that if you look at it, like why would you be moving your other, your other leg into that position? If anything, you should be trying to get back on your feet and get that foot in into a position where you're kind of holding it, if you know what I mean. People can't obviously see me here, but I'm, well, you know, on YouTube, <clears throat> YouTube. Sorry, but I, I just think that that that, to my mind, looked like an opportunistic one. Even though he's not looking, he knows the he he can he can see you can see down there, and I I think it was actually a bad shot to be honest, and I think he deserved the red. I had far more sympathy for the Connacht one. I know Beelham gets it in a bad position, but you could see exactly. That was a that was a that was the correct rugby technique to be going in there, getting that to be to be jumping over that. He just needed to be a little bit more careful with it. So he's unlucky, and I think he needs he was a little bit careless, only a well, little bit careless. He's though. been uh, kind of cleared of it today, and which I, did, I think is probably right. I well. did see a, a Telegraph journalist pointing out that it, it just as he's making that step, Carl Singler's f- f- leg actually goes backwards. He gets a boot in the face just as he's kind of stepping into the rook. So maybe just they, I don't know if they there's do few, that. There's a, few a bit of mitigation there. Like he got a kick in the face himself. So obviously maybe he was a little off balance or a bit disorientated or, or what have you. But you know the, the question of intent. I, I just kind of remember the one like you remember on Paul O'Connell. I like, went to kick that ball and Dave Carney almost got his head like booted clean off his shoulders. Like, but that should have been a red card. But he didn't mean to kick Rob Carney in the head. He went to kick a bouncing ball. Well, well not to. Like someone who I'm unbelievably fond of, but not to dig the. the <laughs> that's one of those ones where 
Okay, man well, and ball. Yeah, man <laughs> and ball. Like it's one. Of, it's like a, one of those hurling ones where you know they say like just whip hard and like if there's someone there, that's that's unfortunate. You know, what I mean? I, that to mine looked like that one of those ones where well I can kind of get away with this one if 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 uh, if he does fall in that position. So I'm not sure. I don't know about that. <laughs> I wish I could. I know what you're trying to get at, but I'm not sure about that one as as a good example either. In, in my opinion, but uh, look, I think it. There, look, at the end of the day, the player safety is is, is very. It's obviously clearly paramount and. And I think, you know, both guys have suffered on this one. And I think subsequently the right decisions have been made. I think, uh, you know, the, to to exonerate um, the Connacht collision is, 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 to my mind, is right, you know, in my opinion. I thought the French referee in the Northampton game did a good job of explaining it as well. He's, I actually think he's a good referee just in terms of like, I don't think there was intent, but we, you know, I do reckless. think it was reckless, etc. I thought he did a good job. And now Courtney Laws obviously wasn't happy and channeled that into a really good second half performance to be fair to him. But uh, yeah, no, it was, it was an interesting weekend for the for, for the two right cards just to, to talk about him. Um, Jonathan, maybe we want to Leinster now, you know, I suppose the, the one province... Uh, obviously, can't win as well, but in terms of progressing with the, with the victory as well, beating Leicester, th- their reward is Leicester again uh, for the fourth time <laughs> in uh, three seasons. I don't think it's a fixture that many people are going to be uh, rushing to buy tickets for, especially when there's a potential card of, of a La Rochelle game uh, the following weekend. It's a bit ahead of us, but you know, what anything stand out to you about their win? I suppose the, the main takeaway was just uh, looking at it through a Six Nations lens and seeing, I suppose. You know, the likes of Dan Sheehan and really, I suppose, Joe McCarthy. Like, how close is Joe McCarthy going to be to uh, to an Ireland start, if not against France, then over the next couple of weeks? I think uh, looking at it, knowing that the, the Six Nations was right around the corner, I think that was probably what I was looking for, you know? Yeah, Joe McCarthy, I, I think he has to start against France. I just think he's, especially with the power there, you know, like bringing back Paul Willemson now, uh, now that Miafu, who would have been very powerful himself, has been ruled out. What, what do you think about that? The one thing about his game that needs to be ironed out is he gives away so many penalties. I like gave away two or three ones. He's young and he's enthusiastic and he's powerful. He's putting himself about, but because in a Six Nations game against France away, you know, two or three of those can be very. Now he was not the first second row at Maro Toja. You know, gives away a lot of penalties too, but. If he can iron that out, I think. But he's I think he's a different player to Atoje in, in, in a lot of respects. You know what I mean? I think um more powerful ball carrier, I'd say. I think he's a better ball carrier. Maybe in the tight, but certainly not in the loose. You know, Otoje to my mind probably gets a little bit more scope to do those things because he's probably he was probably a little bit more I'm not going to say powerful because it's a different it's just a different more it's a different kind of power. Otoje was more in the loose. I know he had lots of good things, you know, around kind of rooks and around malls and things. He was very, very disruptive. And, and and McCarthy does have those things. Where McCarthy really adds the value is probably in the areas where you don't see him as much. I think his tackling is excellent as well. Um, it looks like a real force in rooks and things. And I think it'd be a big benefit to the Irish scrum if he's in there too. Uh, the little bit I know of that, he looks like he's a kind of heavy set guy and I think he'll get better. I think a good a good mole for him would probably be, you know, in the kind of Dunico Callahan type uh, mole, I think is what he should be aiming for. So he should be one of those guys who is, yes, pushing and shoving, disruptive all the way through, but knowing where the lines are. Dunico Callahan, to my mind, was brilliant for that because, he, you know, when he was at the peak of his powers, which for a long period of time as well, um, gave away very, you know, very few penalties, never got a call wrong. He he needs to be that guy if he wants to get in the Irish team. And I still feel like there's a l- I agree. He's averaging about three a game, I'd say. I think, I think every is. game I've seen him this year, I, I he's would agree. away two or three penalties. Without looking at the stats, I would say that sounds right to me. And, and I think he has a, just a little, it's only a little tidying up. I think some of the few Leinster players who were in that boat, by the way, as well, just over 
competing a little bit um, could could do with just reining it in just slightly, uh, uh, you know, because sometimes I feel like he's done the good work. Um, but if he just stepped off the last minute, he still delayed the ball half a second. You know, you don't need to have the massive impact play every single time. And I think there's probably a little bit of, as time goes on, I think that that's probably what will come into his game as he gets a little bit more now about him, a little bit more experience. But certainly going to be pushing. I think he has to be in the bench because of what he provides here, particularly against that French pack. And it looks to me like, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, and I obviously have no real insight into this or deep insight into this, but the, the, the Leinster scrum, which is kind of the Irish scrum, for whatever reason, during the World Cup, seemed to be getting pinged a little bit. And it seems to have followed Leinster around a little bit too. It just doesn't look like it's... Doesn't look like it's something that's unbelievably reliable. I don't think in terms of you know it looks like we might give a couple of penalties away there. Now maybe that'll change in camp. There might be a few different things that happen, but at this point, I think it's probably fair to say that that might be an area where McCarthy can certainly have an impact. And I think particularly in the tight exchanges as well, and and, and on the defensive side, there is something for him there. And even from the carrying side, you mentioned the carrying. He he's one of those guys that gets that gritty one meter where I think a lot of Irish players you know if they're coming up against that French rush defence in the tight you know that kind of first four defenders area McCarthy looks like, like a guy who can withstand a, yeah, a double a double hit there or an impact and still get you a yard which is very very important so he could play a very important role I just don't know if it's that starting berth as of yet it's going up against Ty Byrne James Ryan Ian Henderson so there's a lot of competition for those second row spots which we'll, we'll probably touch on a little more uh, obviously next week ahead of the France game anything else in the Leinster performance which I'm down to you like we were discussing a bit off air Still, I think their chance conversion is not good enough. We like that Doris one just before halftime was like the classic thing of what I've been looking at this season. It's just an open goal try almost. Like if you just recycle that one more phase. One more phase. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping you were going to say and that. Like, yeah. They ended up, he, to be fair to him, he ended up fighting for extra yardage and getting the bonus point try in the 85th minute. But they had three tries on the board after 42 minutes and they missed another couple of chances to get that bonus point wrapped up. If Leicester hadn't decided to throw the ball around at the end to get a score themselves, Leicester wouldn't have got that bonus point. I still think it's an issue. But anything else that you noticed or anything on that that you want to come in on? I thought Josh van der Fleer had a really good game. I think, you know, whether it was, you know, it was the first time I've maybe noticed him in a while I think um, like really having a massive impact some great tackles some really good strips you know I think he looks like he's top of the turnover charts as well in the in the Champions Cup which is which is great to see um, so that's good timing for Ireland I think um, I, I'd also say um, you know I think a little bit sloppy defensively at the start of the game. I thought that was a soft try that they conceded down the short, so kind of a basic enough error. I will say I thought once they got ahead of steam up, you know, Leicester could not compete with them, you know. I think First they, 20 minutes, though, was funny. They really Leicester, got off the line. Yeah, but they, they kind of knocked the stuffing out of them there. I don't know what happened with whether it was a confidence thing. Leicester just continued to play, even when they were kind of going backwards at different stages in that first 20 minutes. But they have great confidence in their, in their ability, I think, to break teams down. And I think they have good confidence in their bench. I love how Nina Barr is using that as a real attack attacking weapon you can see the kind of the South African thinking coming through they're like people are coming off in 50 minutes you know what it does allow you to do is really empty the tank for that 50 minutes and it looks like they're breaking teams a little bit there don't think they'll be able to do that against the guys in the top table your Toulouse's your La Rochelle's will be able to deal with that better but the rest of the outfits can't compete with them and you can see that like on, on 86 minutes I mean, there's very few teams that are able to live with Leinster at that juncture, you know. Um, and yeah, look, Leicester were going for that bonus point as well, obviously, which which did tie into the way they were they were playing kind of loosely. But 
Leinster did look very, very good. And they, they kind of had them nearly broken a couple of times before that. So I think it was deserved. I think a little bit wasteful. They could be a little bit more patient, um, whether it's white line fever, which I think a few of them might have been. Um, but they definitely should be finishing a few more. I, I said last week on the show, I'm less concerned about that side of the game. I think Leinster still have it. They still have that ability to break teams down, to be clinical and to get tries. Um, and I think they'll, that'll get better as the, as the season goes on. What I did like about the performance was the defensive side. There was periods in that kind of middle portion of the game where Leicester had the ball and were just getting pushed back like 20, 30 metres, the line speed. And I thought the, the tackle accuracy improved. I still feel like against the best teams... I'm just checking, are we up to, how many weeks are we now in the Jack Neen Avro countdown <laughs> clock? <laughs> the 14-week countdown. <laughs> I don't know. But look, I think they, they'll continue to get better there. I still think the tackle technique is, is an issue for them. I think you can, you know, they're, they're still, their feet are still a little bit far away from the body for me and they're diving at a lot of ones they don't need to dive at. But I, I, I could see the start of, of, of it coming through in periods in that, in that game. And that was very pleasing. Um, so yeah, look, I think there was lots to be positive about. Thought low looked good, um, you know, which is great for Ireland too. Um, and it looked like Henshaw, Henshaw had a pretty good game as well as, as Ringrose still a few tackles I wish, he, I wish he'd stick, but he still looked very good at different points too. So a lot of things good from an Irish perspective and a lot Leinster can be very pleased. Like that's still a tough place to go and get a win. Yeah, do you know what's funny that it made the joke with Jack Neener 14 weeks? I'm pretty sure when I went back and looked at it, it the 14 week period is around the quarter final stage. Could be Leinster. Uh, right. It could time. be Leinster yeah, 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 again, yeah, yeah. though. I'm sure yeah. that's what I'm saying. That would be the perfect acid <laughs> test for Jack Neener's 14 week uh, blueprint to see if he can overcome Leinster. Yeah. But speaking of kind of the knockout stages, Jonathan, obviously the you know the, the bracket has been set now. You know, we have five rematches going into the to the last sixteen of, of pool matches. At least for Leinster Northampton, or sorry, Munster Northampton and Leinster Leicester, it's kind of the home and away games have been have been flipped around. So there's some sort of novelty there. But some people kind of saying, "Oh, it's a it's a flaw in the tournament that we're getting these rematches." Like, what, what's your view? And I've actually really enjoyed the pool stages. I thought the four weeks of rugby was very entertaining, but it is a little frustrating, especially I suppose the Leinster Leicester one in particular because we've seen it so many times recently. But you know, some of these things are kind of unavoidable because they want to incentivize the various seedings so people keep kind of pushing to the last day. But what, what are your thoughts on it? I think, yeah, I enjoyed the pool stages as a whole game to game. Like, they were good quality games. I still think the format completely undermines it. Like, to have a round robin where not everybody plays everybody renders having a round robin pointless, really. Like, Ulster's pool was a decent example, not a perfect example because Ulster didn't really deliver upon it, but like the fact that everybody else in that pool got to play Cardiff meant that Ulster essentially gave everybody else a five-point head start. Like if Ulster had to perform better and still went out, then they could have had real complaints over that. So that's one flawed format. And then the fact that if you have four teams from each pool going through, then obviously you are going to end up with these repeat fixtures. And some of them, like anyone who watched like the Stormers against La Rochelle, as an example, would be excited to watch that game again. So I don't mind that as much. I do think, really, even just the idea of having a last 16, I understand why they have it. It brings in more money. People enjoy the jeopardy of the knockout rugby. But you are going to end up with, I suppose, games that aren't that appetizing because the difference between the first, you know, the best couple of teams in Europe and the 16th, 15th, 14th best teams in Europe to my mind, is quite large. So I think that's as much of an issue as seeing games that we've already seen this season. 
It's funny, uh, you're right, I actually hadn't considered that. Ulster were completely shafted with that pool because <laughs> Cardiff were only in there, I think, because the Welsh team had like, you know, that slot reserve, which is gone yeah. from the league now. Yeah, so they didn't even actually qualify. And as you said, they got beaten out the gate in all their matches. So Ulster, as you said, was spotting every team in the pool five points, whereas Ulster got a hard draw generally, but when they didn't even get to play that game, uh, it makes Tricky, it like even Leinster had like La Rochelle away and not to have them at home was, you know, it, it, like it, they're, they're kind of things you're kind of going, oh, is that right or is that wrong? I always felt like that was a, that's a tough break to get yeah. as a, one of the I always want to know how they decided who got that home fixed you know because obviously that could have been the other way around you know, yeah. And like, you know yeah 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 it's a tricky well, the one the press release said it was a secret algorithm a secret algorithm oh, yeah. oh wow. fancy like, Ulster ended up playing the two French teams at home and the two English teams away which again sort of goes against logic you would think it would be uh, one and then the other you know but apparently it was a, it was an algorithm that uh, took into consideration lots of things including where you were the week before domestic schedules things like that and it uh, spat out these fixtures so also we're doubly shafted then I really think because you well, ideally no, you have the two French teams at home but, and you got, that, that's but see they were going to lose to Toulouse anyway so by, uh, no, by playing no. them away no I'm telling you by playing them away it means you get one of the English teams at home who you might have a better chance of beating that's how if I was you know, handpicking an Ulster draw the first thing I saw when I had, saw they had Toulouse at home was like oh you don't want to waste one of your fixtures on a team you're probably not going to beat anyway mm, now that's a defeated I'm changing my mind I'm not an Ulster yeah. player I'm just saying that from a, as a kind of a, a kind of a I always absurd. think you're trying to win every game but I actually think on reflection you're definitely right yeah well, you're <laughs> right. Right. I think like it simultaneously made it more likely that they could have won all four games but also lose all four games and obviously <laughs> yeah. they skewed more towards the ladder, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. Fair. That was, yeah, it's funny. I actually uh, the secret algorithm is intriguing me now. I, <laughs> I'd love I, I, to meet the secret algorithm. <laughs> yeah, I, the, I thought it was a flip of a coin. Uh, that's the secret algorithm. Uh, one thing I want to touch on before we finish up with our moment of the week, Joe Schmidt, uh, Australia. We had touched on it a couple of weeks ago. at wrote about the prospect of that coming into play. It's now been nailed on. He signed up into the Lions tour, with I think maybe a possibility of extending that further, depending on how it goes. I'm really excited. I must say, I think it's a great appointment. Australian rugby's crying out for someone like him. I know we touched on it already about what we might do but you know what do you, what do you think I've been coached by him like you know oh, you know what you know, I, yeah. I thought they should have had him in before Eddie, Eddie, um, Eddie Jones I, I've said that for a long time because I thought he wasn't feeling the love with, with New Zealand at all um, but clearly they figured that out at the end that he was going to be something that was going to be a value add to the setup there and he had a big impact at the World Cup for them so um, yeah look I think it's a brilliant appointment I think everything about him is exactly what Australia need they should have signed him up for a longer deal if you ask me I think um, you know his love for the grassroots of the game as well will be important like Australia is obviously a bigger country slightly uh, than Ireland but he was able to travel down to AIL games and all that kind of stuff he will do that in his free time just because he loves rugby he something like that could really reinvigorate what's happening in Australia because they're obviously under massive pressure competing with all the other sports straight away straight off the bat but they've always been they always have brilliant athletes and they always have been really really creative and they've always done brilliant with probably, you know, they have bigger resources maybe than, say, the likes of us. But with other the other bigger countries that they've traditionally been able to beat very consistently, uh, particularly when they're at the, in their pomp through the 80s and 90s um, and the early 2000s, in fairness, as well, um, they were always able to make brilliant do with what they had in terms of, of uh, r you know, raw materials. Um, someone like Joe, I think, is the perfect guy to kind of step in there and get the get everyone moving in the, in the right direction. Um, you know, he has, is, is, is did I hear, is New Sephora coming in there in some capacity He's as well? He's a consultant, yeah. Yeah, so I think that'll be helpful too, even though I don't always agree with all of New Sephora's decisions um, and some of how he's 
probably acted with players behind the scenes. I probably got a bit more insight into that than maybe uh, other people. But, um, you know, I think they do work well together, have a history. He'll know what Joe wants and Joe will know what he'll get from 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 New Sephora. Um, I think it's a brilliant appointment. I've been calling for that for a long time down there. I think he is exactly what they need. And um, sadly, it didn't come in time for the World Cup, but just in time for the Lions Tour for, for us. So hopefully he, he can get them competitive pretty quickly. I can't see how he can't or he won't be able to do that. I think there's still enough good players in Australia that they'll be able to get things right. Now, I do think they have an issue at 10, which is a big problem for them. wonder could our, our, our Frawley, would that be something that maybe uh, Joe might come in? That coffee shop in Milltown, maybe, you know, yeah, the, the old Joey Carberry table. Something <laughs> needs to happen anyway. But yeah, look, I think there's... Um, you know, they, they have a few problem positions, but other than that, there's still some good resource there and good players, and I think he'll get them moving in the right direction. Yeah, and I said it, like when we talked about it last week, I just think it, it would have been a shame if he had kind of ridden off into the sunset or done like, you know, rugby consulting or that world rugby role. Like, I want to see him like on in a tracksuit. He's too good not yeah, to. Yeah, he's too good yeah. of a coach. And yeah, Jonathan, like, you know, obviously it spices up the Lions tour, Andy Farrell versus Joe Schmidt in, in, in two years' time. And it's funny, like, Joe referred to himself as boring in the press conference. Like, oh, you know, I'm a bit boring, I think people think. But even though he's not a big character, I, I think he adds a lot of, maybe from an Irish perspective more so, because obviously we have the history with him. But, like, it makes me, like, infinitely more interested in Australian rugby now that he's at the helm, even though he might not be an Eddie Jones-style personality. I suppose just his teams are interesting to me. And I think interesting generally. What do you, like, do you agree? No, 100%. Like, I do think the idea of Joe not being interesting has been cultivated by nobody more so than Joe himself. Like, Joe wants to appear boring and has gone to some lengths to present himself as boring when I don't think that he actually is at all. But yeah, Thursday morning, like, my first thought whenever I saw that news on Thursday was the Lionster because I think we were all quite concerned about how interesting or not interesting this Lions tour was going to be if Australia were the same Australia that we saw at the World Cup. And I suppose the the journalistic narrative, if you like, of Farrell against Schmidt, all of a sudden ratchets the interest up in that the in that series tenfold. And you think back to, you know, the Ireland team that he took over coming off the back of that uh, last six nations under Declan Kidney, the loss to Italy. Uh, you know, he comes in the autumn of 2013 and within what his third game, Ireland nearly beat the All Blacks for the first time. So I wouldn't have any worries about him getting us or getting the most out of that squad quickly, bearing in mind that, you know, we're 18 months away from this Lions tour now a little bit more. So I think he'll improve them rapidly. He may not, just as as Luke sort of alluded to there, he may not have the talent, I think, to uh, really get them firing in a top one, two, three sides in the world sort of way just yet. I don't think the players are there, but I think he will make them competitive, which if we're going back to the World Cup, you know, they weren't. Yeah, and like we said, we touched on this like was it last week or two weeks ago? But you know, the landscape has vastly changed in the rugby championship. Scott Robertson is coming in, obviously with a big, you know, kind of CV and personality. But that's a new coach. Jack Nabra is gone. You know, contapomi has gone into Argentina. So there's a bit of flux generally. So who's to say that he can't maybe hit the ground running and pick up a few scalps? And as you say, Jonathan, they were so well for at the World Cup that it's impossible to do any worse than that. So at the very least, they'll be uh, they'll be more competitive. You think? Okay, we're gonna finish up now with the left wing moment of the week in association with Bank of Ireland um, I think myself and Luca are along similar lines yeah, giving Northampton a bit of kudos do you want to go first with yours? I think the drop goal Finn Smith's drop goal was outstanding you know that was 
uh, a, a moment of brilliance, um, you know, taking advantage of the win. It was kind of stagnant. The game had kind of stagnated, but it was a huge, huge lift. I thought that gave them belief to go on and kind of kick on. And, um, yeah, I thought he was brilliant. Interesting to see what, what his career shapes. Like he's obviously a young guy. And Northampton seemed to be in a good place, as, as I mentioned earlier on. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I was delighted to see... Obviously, obviously want to see Munster win, but I was delighted to see him have a big day out. It's great to see these young talents kind of emerging and, and interesting to see how far he goes in the game. So he's someone now that I wouldn't have known about, but I'll be watching closely. So that was a great moment, I think. Yeah, I think I was, mine was just for Northampton winning generally just because... They, their record against Munster in Tomlin Park was so poor. Obviously, the famous Rodgers drop goal was one game, but I think they've lost five out of five they played in Tomlin Park. And over the last couple of years they, in the Champions Cup, I've, I found them like a real kind of frustrating team. They've just been like, they've lost like to Leinster loads of times getting beaten out the gate. They haven't really added anything to the tournament for quite a long time. And they've been quite a soft team, play good rugby, but couldn't really roll up the sleeves and dig out, you know, tough wins. The top of the premiership at the moment and playing really well, but it was just the, See, kind the of coaching the, box after it. They yeah. were chuffed. Yeah. Like, Cause I think, really I think he felt Dowson said it. It was a steal. They showed on the road, 14 men, like for me, that's much more impressive than beating Exeter 42-36 three weeks ago in a you know 15 try basketball game. This was like I think they scored what two tries. One was from a mall, one was from a snipe, and then they kicked they kicked their goals. It was a kind of a, an old school kind of victory. That and like Courtney Laws was fantastic. So I just thought for them to kind of get that win. I think they lost home and away to Munster last year. So getting that win and they, obviously they, they'll play them again in the last 16, which will be interesting. Jonathan, I'll give you the last word. What was your moment of the week? I was tempted to say just getting home after the Thomas Ramos. So to lose a second try, the Jack Willis turnover, the Dupont grubber through, and then the Thomas Ramos uh, chip ahead. The commentators weren't really giving it enough love. This we're sort of saying very lucky bounce for him to execute that uh, chip over the top of the last defender. I thought was an incredible piece of skill and. From a player in Ramos who's been playing out of position really since uh, since Entomac's been injured, but the the link between him and uh, Dupont at nine and ten for Toulouse has been uh, probably just across the whole pool stage. Is not just in that uh, in that bath game for me has been uh, one of the real real highlights of the last uh, I suppose six weeks really. Yeah, Thomas Ramos has been is like he's he's become one of the best players in the world. He, obviously, he's been playing for quite a long time now, but the last like two years or so, he's just been lights out. He's been so good. <laughs> She's sorry, <laughs> got so excited. Like, um, I think the kicking is what impressed me most with him. Off the deck, he looks like so solid. He looks like he's never going to miss one. But to be able to switch between fifteen and ten like that, pretty seamlessly in big games, yeah, no, that he, he's a great player. Yeah, great player. Really, really good to see that. Just it's, when you when you see a guy being able to play multiple positions at the top level, tells you he's a footballer. You know. Yeah, it was actually good to see Dupont playing so well at the weekend and knowing that he will He's not gone. be there in two weeks' time. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know Maxime Lucci has been playing pretty well for Bordeaux and himself at Jalabert will likely be the halfback pairings, but yeah, that, that was one that was one positive for the weekend. But for now, I'd like to thank Luke and Jonathan for joining me on this week's episode of the Left Wing Podcast. We will be back next week with plenty of podcasts looking ahead to the opening Six Nations game against France. Until then, you can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.